from the north and welcome to Forum Borealis and a new episode in our fourth series called Covert History of the Knights Templar. Grandmaster Timothy Hogan is our guest tonight who will fill us in on the world's most legendary group as a part of the Bacon R.C. Shakespeare Oak Island theme permeating this series that we've baptized from Solomon's Temple to Arcadia. Hogan is an author, researcher and initiate of several spiritual and esoteric traditions, including the Templar remnant called Ordre Souverain du Temple Initiatique, of which he is the Grandmaster. Additionally, he is the president of its outer vehicle, Circes International, also known as the Templar Research Institute, a school for personal cultivation that studies the world's cultural and spiritual traditions throughout history. Furthermore, he is a former editor and has written for several periodicals over the last decade, including L'Initiation, or Initiation, the new Equinox Journal, Ariadne's Web, the Scottish Rights Journal and Herodom, and currently writes for Livingston Magazine. He has lectured all over the world, both in public and private venues, and has appeared in numerous TV programs worldwide, as well as multiple podcasts and radio interviews. He also works as CEO of Elite Sterling Security and is one of the founders of the cigar shops Fraternitas Cigars. With his vast experience from all the lectures, articles, presentations and books he's produced on the subject, he is the right chap to cover this important background to the many mysteries and phenomenons we're exploring in this series, as well as others. Now, this program has taken a very long time to release, because the original recording was so poor that it required heavy, detailed and time-consuming doctoring. Fortunately, the program is now perfectly audible, at least sprinkled with a tiny grain of your good will. Welcome uh, to the forum, Timothy. Thank you, Al. I'm happy to be here. Yes, and we're very happy to have you. You are actually our first listener-suggested guest. Uh, we have uh, encouraged listeners to, to pitch us uh, suggestions. And a guy, I think his name was Vincent Leo, he suggested you. Okay. I looked into you and uh, I found out that you, you are the right guest for the right timing 
because you are regarded as an international authority on the Knights Templars. And we've had a couple of programs already where they've been lurking in the background. So uh, I think it's high time that we're addressing them in their own show. So this uh, program here will be a part of a series we're going to have, or actually we're making right now, on esoterics. So, Templars Timothy, most people, when they hear that, they get this romantic view of the Middle Ages and stuff, and will probably be surprised to learn that there's still people around who call themselves the Knights Templars. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah, depending on uh, where you come from, when you hear Templars, you, you most people either think of uh, Knights searching for the Holy Grail, or or they think of crusaders in, in the Holy Land trying to uh, defend pilgrims, or, uh, or they may have all kinds of other wild ideas. Right. Yeah, th- those associations are there, but I've noticed that people often approach the Templarism from different perspectives. Some people regard them as bankers, uh, which I guess we can make a case for that they were one of history's first bankers. Some people regard them as spiritual, uh, esoteric, occult. And some people, I guess, look at them more as a political force. Now, when you, you present these, because you are you ha- having lectures on Templarism, right? Correct. So when you present it, what is your perspective uh, how do you pitch the Templar approach? Well, certainly, I would say uh, all three of those categories fit uh, traditionally in history. At different periods in history, uh, there may have been more of a political or more of a, a banker type of influence. Certainly, the, some of the spiritual and the, the occult aspects of Templarism have been there as well. And... Uh, some historians have recognized it and others haven't. Mm. But I would say that all three of those have have fit in traditionally. Mm. So uh, how would you say that the Templars originated? You remember back in the 80s when uh, this book uh, that really helped bring them into the mainstream consciousness, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, yeah. And there was this fad around the Prière de Sion, which many literally believed, even though it's kind of debunked, at least connected to the guy they interviewed. But according to them, there was a Prière de Sion originally, who the Templars originated from. What's your take on that? Well, according to... The tradition I belong to, the Order Sovereign du Temple Initiatique, mm-hmm. uh, the the beginning of the Templarism really started with a number of French families that uh, many of whom belonged to the Albigensians or the or the Cathars of southern France. Mm. Certainly, there were Gnostic and Kabbalistic families. Uh, Hugh de Paines, for example, his his grandfather. Hugh de Paines was the first Grand Master of the Knights Templar, and his grandfather was Theobald de Paines Le Mort de Gardier, mm. uh, who was a more Sufi. So, yeah. 
So, you know, you had Sufi connections, you had uh, agnostic connections with uh, certain Cathars. There were, there were other people like uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote the rule for the Templars, and, and he was working with a person by the name of Shlomo Yazaki, who was uh, better known as Rashi of Troyes, mm. who was a very famous Kabbalist. And uh, according to our tradition, uh, what had happened was Hugh de Payens and Godfrey de St. Omar, who were you know, two of the founding Templars, uh, had gone to Constantinople, and knowing that there was a secret school of initiatic Gnostic tradition there, and from their own family background, they ended up being initiated into this tradition, which really was the beginning of the uh, planning for creating the Templar Order in 1118. Right. So you would say that the Qatars, they were present before the Templars then, because many of the Qataric families joined the Templars. Yeah, that whole region of the Languedoc of southern France was, I mean, between the Qatars, the, the Abigensians, uh, there, there were... It was just rife with Gnostic, and still is, uh, Gnostic traditions. And uh, places like, uh, oh, Troyes, for example, which was, you know, where the rule of the Templar was made and everything else, uh, was an alchemical center, and it was... Uh, these ideas were flourishing there. So it was like a, a free-thinker area. Correct. Okay. So it's not maybe far-fetched to assume then that many people associated with the Templars in order to try to maybe gather an alternative power bastion to the, to the Catholic hegemony? I think that's fair to say, yeah. There, were, there was, while, even though the, the Templar Order appeared outwardly as Roman Catholic and worked under the Pope, it's known that they were uh, practicing secret Gnostic thought and uh, were associating with other Gnostic groups, both within Europe and within the Middle East itself. Mm. But this was before the Vatican turned their guns on their own uh, Europe, on their own area, and started to purge, uh, you know, the alternative thoughts within Europe. This was when they still had a focus on outer enemies. Obviously, it's <laughs> it's it's typical in history. You you first crush your outer enemies, and then you turned. Inwards, which is also what's happened here. But the, the, you know, a mainstream historian would say that, uh, well, the Templars were founded in order to help crush the resistance in uh, the Holy Land so they could take over. So the question is, um, how much of this was a real reason and how much, because there's many perspectives, some think that the uh, this was the agenda or the things that the, it always was a, a, an alternative agenda some uh, think that when they came to the holy land that's when they got in touch with alternative currents uh, like you mentioned sufism and stuff 
Gnosticism. Yeah. Others say that, no, no, the intention of the Templars was always to get to the Holy Land, to find something. Uh, so uh, th this is a lot of threads. You, you feel free to uh, sort them out. And, and one more thing uh, before I ask you to, to give your thoughts on this. There is also um, this suggestion that uh, they uh, were related to other groups that we maybe mentioned pre-radiation, but you also have um, Catholic orders that have been associated to the Templars. For instance, the Hospitallers. So... Uh, how would you sort out this mess? Well, we, we do know that so very early on, when the, when the Templar Order was first founded, for nine years it only consisted of nine people who were given the mission of protecting all of the pilgrims in the, in the Holy Land, which is quite <laughs> absurd. I mean, I mean, and they were given land near the Dome of the Rock, which they made as their headquarters. And we know now, of course, that they've spent that nine years digging. digging. Yes. And uh, they were doing archaeological work. Uh, after nine years, their numbers grew. But we know from the very beginning that, that they were not sent there as crusaders to fight Islamic armies. I mean, uh, they had a fatwa from Cairo that, that granted them permission to be at the Dome of the Rock, which was the second most holy site in Islam. Mm. So, yeah, it was, so Islam itself, it granted them permission to be there. So they had to be on good terms with the local authorities. Correct, yeah, they're already on good terms, and it is, and uh, as, as early as, uh, there is a uh, there is a work called the the Order of Chivalry, Orden Orden de Chivalry, which was uh, compiled in about 1250, and in this it actually talks about the Knights Templar receiving and initiating Saladin into the Knights wow. Templar. And of course, Saladin was the head of the Islamic armies. So that puts a real kink in this perspective as well, and we know. We also know that uh, the Templars didn't exactly get along well with the Knights Hospitalia. In fact, uh, they were they were known for fighting each other yeah. quite a bit. And uh, it was when the Templars were suppressed, all of their properties and land holdings were transferred to the Knights Hospitalia. Yeah. But uh, there has been some rumors that you know there's been some speculation that uh, the vatican was trying to get jacques de Molay to merge with the hospitality get the templar order to merge yeah for those who don't know that was the last grandmaster when they attacked the templars and, and closed them down correct yeah in uh, you know they, they they say somewhere around 1300 you know, they were trying to, to convince Jacques de Molay to merge the two orders, and he didn't want to do it. And That's, that's significant. That indicates that uh, they weren't on such good terms. Now, some historians claim that they sought refuge within the Hospitaller order, but uh, I, I don't see that these two claims fit. Yeah, well, what happened was when the, when the Templars were suppressed, they were rounded up and, you know, there was a surprise attack on them on uh, Friday, October 1307. 
where all the Templars were in Paris or in particular were rounded up and uh, uh, basically tortured for seven years uh, in an attempt to extract false confessions in order to uh, justify taking over their wealth and such. But uh, we know that many Templars just simply joined other orders. Uh, some of them, I'm sure, joined the Knights Hospitalier. I'm sure some of them joined the Teutonic Knights. Others, we know there was a whole body of Templars in Spain, for example, who just went back to the Holy Land and became uh, converted to Islam. Uh, there was a belief that some fled to uh, other countries and uh, took on new identities. And, uh, and then in, in places like Portugal, they just changed their name to the Knights of Christ. Right. Is that the same one that Columbus was a member of? That's correct, yeah. His, well, his father-in-law, Columbus's father-in-law, was uh, yeah, a Knight of Christ. And, and many people believe that, uh, well, Columbus got many of his maps, actually, yeah. from his father-in-law. And, uh, yeah. Well, one of our frequent guests, uh, Dr. Joseph Farrell, he's made a case for actually... He substantiated a hypothesis that Columbus' real father was actually a pope, and that and that both of them were uh, Knights Templars. Good. So uh, you know it sounds far fetched, but when you look at his his research, because that's what it is, it's uh, evidence based theories, then you really start to wonder. But the, his point was that he got maps of the New World via the old libraries of Constantinople. However, I know that from a friend of mine who is a historic researcher that he also had a lineage to Knight Templar Vikings through, via the Jarl of Orkney and um, Sinclair. He was married to, to that family. Yes. So he could have gotten maps of America both from the Vikings and from the old Byzantine um, libraries. That's true. And, uh, you know, it's worth pointing out that Hugh de Paines, for example, you know, the first Grand Master of the Knights Templar, he was married to Catherine de Sinclair, mm -hmm. who uh, was the cousin of Cratian de Troyes, who wrote the very first Grail legend. Right, right. So, so there's a, a connection there. Well, what about the Cistercians? Many claim that Cistercians were also behind the founding of the Templars. Yeah, so, um, so that's a good question. So, uh, actually, you have, uh, so again, one of the founders of or who the, what, the person who wrote the rule for the Templars was Saint Bernard of Clairvaux. Saint Bernard, uh, along with Hugh, the Count of Champagne, started the Cistercian Order. And Hugh, Count of Champagne, was also one of the original nine Templars. Right. So, so we have these two people who were involved in the creation of the Cistercian Order, along with Peter the Hermit, and uh, they were. Uh, also involved in the, the creation and guidance of the early Templar order. And so, at least according to my tradition, mm -hmm. uh, the part of the job of the Templar order was to go out 
to the Holy Land and to other places uh, and seek out uh, the different traditions that, you know, were passing on this earlier philosophy, mm-hmm. these earlier philosophies, these Gnostic philosophies, these Pythagorean philosophies, and these Hermetic philosophies, and to seek them out and to uh, gain as many documents as they could of and texts that they could of these philosophies and bring them back to this assertion order whose job was to translate. Okay, so the Knight Templars were like an action group on behalf of the Cistercian in the beginning. Yes, yeah, mm. pretty much. Yeah, I mean, uh, when you, when you figure in people like uh, Rashi of Troyes, who was a you know, very famous Kabbalist and friend of Saint Bernard of Clairvaux and, uh, and others, you know, the, the legend is that they the Templars were actually finding all kinds of different documents, bringing them back to be translated and, uh, you know, by different people. In fact, even according to traditional rabbinical teachings, uh, for example, there was a there was a rabbi known as Rabbi David Joseph Hayam Azulai from the 17th, around 1750s. And uh, according to the, the his writings and other early Kabbalists, there was a belief that the Kabbalistic texts of the Zohar and the Sefer Habahir were actually found by Templars in the Holy Land and brought back to Jewish communities in Spain to be translated. Right. So, uh, could, could this have contributed to the free-thinking atmosphere of Toledo? Yes, for sure. And mm. it's worth pointing out that, for example, the say, at the same time that the Zohar was being uh, published for the first time in Toledo, that's also where Wolfram von Eschenbach's book Parsifal was first mm. published. So we see that in history we have uh, Jewish and Islamic mysticism operating parallel with uh, this Christian mysticism then? Yeah, very much so. In fact, um, yeah, there, there appears to be, well, there's definitely Sufi and Druze, and of course uh, the Jewish mystical tradition uh, that were all mixing in with the Christian Gnosticism that the Templars were secretly practicing. Hmm. But what about the assassins or the hashashins? I mean, uh, often when we are confronted with Templar lore, they are pointed out as someone who the Templars, uh, not only, you know, in mainstream history, they are portrayed as enemies, as elite soldiers of uh, the Catholic army and the Saladin army. But um, maybe the Pope didn't have that much control because no. even mainstream historians, some of them admit that there may have been some exchange of secret information between uh, these groups. What's your take on that? Uh, I'm sure there. I'm sure there was. The Templars were associating with many different groups, both according to you know these traditional groups themselves and the Templar tradition. I mean, uh, for example, the Druze that primarily exist in Lebanon, they have traditions talking about the Templars working with them in the Middle Ages, and, and the Templar traditions like myself, like my order, continue to have close relationships with the Druze to this mm-hmm. day. 
So um, and they're a you know they're a Gnostic group that venerate Pythagoras and Hermes as mm-hmm. prophets. So uh, and pass on Hermetic and uh, alchemical and uh, Hermetic doctrines and, and Pythagorean doctrines. Those so those those interests are still there. And so there there were and there were other groups. I mean the temp, there's there's records of Templar associations with the early cops of Ethiopia mm. uh, and uh, uh, the Sufi and certainly the Hashishin. I mean uh, you know the, the Hashishin obviously they, they get a a bad rap in our modern world because they were let's believe that the uh, yeah, of course, this is where where the, the term for marijuana comes from, and also the word assassin. Yeah, yeah, you think of the word hash, but, hashish. Correct. Mm. But uh, but actually, that you know, a more correct belief, the more correct Arabic version of the of the word basically means wisdom. It's another word for or knowledge, divine knowledge. It's another word for gnosis. Right. So it's really. One belief is that they were Gnostics themselves, but of course the way they operated was rather than have a bunch of armies fight each other and, and hundreds and hundreds of people die, the, the Hashishin would just go and take out the leader secretly, privately, and then that would be the end of it. You know? <laughs> very cost-effective. So, yes, very much so. I wish we could conduct modern wars like that. Yeah, that's right. So... Yeah, wouldn't have all these refugee problems, would we? <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, that was, it was very quick and simple, and so they were they were very much feared because of that. But uh, from their perspective, you know, they were saving thousands and thousands of lives, yeah. you know, by just taking out one person. No wonder they they got a bad rap because it's the leaders who actually have something to fear here. Of course, so they would demonize them. Of course, of course. <laughs> But um, I, I see that, uh, you know, it's, it, like you said, it's completely unrealistic that they were at least originally and uh, intended, the real intention was to fight. And if they get down there, uh, it's obvious that they would benefit from uh, making a lot of positive connections to secret groups. But this tells us, at least in my simple logic, it tells me that the pre defined agenda had to be that they were looking for something or searching for something i mean it's the same it's the same subject that you have in the grail uh, lore which you yourself pointed out was yes. closely connected to the templar so what would they be searching for and who would send them down why would they send them down and another interesting question uh, in all of this is What's the Pope's view? I mean, there has been different Popes through the era that the Templars officially existed, and some of them, should we say, more anti-Templar than others. But wouldn't the Vatican feel threatened from the very outset? Because uh, the Vatican represented uh, the opposite of this, and uh, it was the Vatican who uh, the Templars were subversive towards. So how on earth did they manage to to get such an alternative uh, group on their feet. Who was these people? Why did they send them down? What's going on here? Well, I think er- at early on at the time, you have to remember that Europe was not exactly uh, in a great place at the 
time. You know, there wasn't there wasn't much social order. I mean, there was different uh, little kingdoms, and there was this general influence of the church. But uh, in terms of large city centers and trade and the moving of supplies and you know there wasn't really any of that going on and, and certainly it was known that places like Constantinople there was incredible architectural things that were starting to be built like the Hagia Sophia for example was if you can imagine uh, the crusaders coming down from Europe and going down into Constantinople and seeing the Hagia Sophia for the first time it would have been like seeing a UFO for them. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing like that in Europe at the time. They didn't have those architectural capabilities. And so these were all sciences, arts and sciences, that Europe didn't have. And I think the Vatican hoped that some of this knowledge could be brought back uh, and that they could use it for their own their own ends and of course as you know the Templars began to do more of this uh, I think they kept most of it to themselves or people that they chose to associate with and they just let a little bit out to the church itself ah so so they got the church on board by pretending that it was a joint venture yes mm. yeah I mean for example uh there is quite a bit of research going on suggesting, for example, that the uh, the cathedrals of Europe, certainly the cathedrals of Notre Dame, uh, were all funded and a great deal of the craftsmen that built them were all coming from the Templar order. Yeah, the original uh, masons. Correct, yeah. The, and the, but it was... You know, the Templars, most people think of them as just knights, but they had, you know, they, they certainly had bankers, they had sea captains, they had farmers, they had clerics, and they had architects. And they had, they built over a thousand Gothic constructions across Europe in their, you know, 200 years before they were suppressed. And uh, the two main building guilds, for example, of Notre Dame, of, uh, you know, in France were two groups. One was called the Children of Solomon and the other was called the Children of the Master Jacques. And both of those building guilds say that they were part of the original building force of the Knights Templar. So the church was getting these, you know, mega, these big, uh, city center churches in the middle of, of all these areas, uh, which looked pretty good for their power structure, but decorated on all these cathedrals are actually secret alchemical and Gnostic and Kabbalistic ideas that the Templars were bringing back from the Middle East. Yeah, sacred geometry, right, that these buildings are, are based upon. Very much so. I mean, you look at Schott Cathedral, for example, and there's a there's a carving of Pythagoras right. on the on the on the on the outer portal to the to the church. And uh, you know, of course, Pythagoras wasn't in the Bible, <laughs> but but the people the people who 
who uh, were building this church were, were memorializing him at a time where no one in Europe really even knew who Pythagoras was. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, no wonder that uh, one of the popes derailed a crusade to Constantinople, Istanbul, Byzantz, because, <laughs> like you said, they saw all these wonderful uh, achievements. And I wanted some. Uh, but it is, in, it is interesting that the bankers in Venetia, yes. that Venetia is uh, more or less just a loot, a booty from uh, Istanbul, Constantinople. And uh, many people, uh, uh, you know, regard uh, the Templars as bankers, but it's isn't it also true that the Venetians were bankers and that there may have been some kind of um, survival in, in the banking industry, so to speak? Yeah, very much so. I mean, to be able to... To transfer money across borders was was real power mm. back then. It's still real power today, and in uh, back then that was, you know, that was a power that uh, that allowed you to control kings and uh, and provinces, and uh, and so there were a number of. For example, the, the 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 crusade that the church did against the Cathars in southern France. I mean, the people make it very romantic, like it's about you know they were trying to get secret treasures of the Cathars or whatever. But it, what it was really about was it was a land grab. They were wow. they were trying to you know uh, at the time uh, Toulouse was was richer and more prosperous than Paris. And so uh, the church going in to try to take that territory was a means of, uh, you know, controlling the the money and the commerce and everything else. So the, the entire history is full of these episodes of, People tried to take territories in order to control the, the, the finances of that territory, and uh, and uh, so certainly the Venetians were, were were very much involved in this. The Templars, uh, you know, their their banking that they were setting up was really all it was about was how you know charging interest for for moving money and holding money. Uh, as as money moved between territories, yeah, it was practical back in the day. Uh, there wasn't many ways to conduct such uh, transferences, so so they were very innovative. But but I'm getting back to the regions here because uh, they were supposed to be a, a poor order. So the <laughs> irony here is that they were poor order and then they grow at some point and become bankers and land uh, barons. So how do you account for that strange development? Well, one of the things that happened was they, you know, any, anyone who joined the Templar order renounced their property and their money over to the order. And uh, so even though the knights themselves were said to own nothing and would have everything provided to them by the order, 
technically speaking, the order was quite rich, and and noblemen would make huge donations to the order. And then the order also, uh, with you know, it would again it would charge interest for holding money and for transferring money for people, and uh, it made more money that way. And so they were known to actually loan money to kings and uh, everything else towards the end. In fact, uh, Philip the Fair of France, who was one of the people who was instrumental in trying to suppress the Templar order, many people believe part of the reason why he tried to, well, he, he did succeed in suppressing the Templar order was because he owed the Templar order a bunch of money uh, for loans he had taken from it. So... Uh, yeah, plus plus he was uh, allegedly a rejected uh, applicant too. He was, that, that, that's correct, yeah. Now how he got the Pope in on it uh, is another story. Uh, I guess maybe he promised him uh, spiritual uh, hegemony? Well, there there's some historians that have accepted the fact that Philip the Fair orchestrated getting that Pope on the throne to begin with because he had assassinated right. a previous pope and, uh, and so he was kind of a terror <laughs> and uh, so he got someone on the throne that would would do his bidding so to speak so but but let's uh, let's get uh, a little clear timeline here officially they are founded when officially they're founded in 1118 1118, and officially, when were they banished? Well, they were they they were rounded up on charges in 1307, and then the Templar Order was officially disbanded in 1314. So, uh, about 200 years, they got to conduct their business in open. Correct. Now, how big were they at the most powerful? I guess that was at the end. How many people do you think uh, approximately were associated with them? Oh, uh, it was tens of thousands. I know, I know that. You know, there was a... Uh, they had become pretty much the first multinational corporation. Right. And, uh, you know, they were involved in everything from... You know, they had an entire fleet of ships. They had the entire building guild, building... Armies. Yeah, they had armies. They had, you know, they they owned lots of land where they had uh, farmers whose job was just to grow, for example, wheat and other things to make bread. Uh, They, they, uh, you know, they were, and then of course they were transferring money and. uh, But all of these, well, obviously, uh, such a big venture. Uh, any huge corporation have many daughter corporations or should we say branches or arms and the same uh, goes for the Templars now our uh, approach here uh, that we began with was a little more mystical so they also had like a spiritual branch and uh, for all intents and purposes it seems that that's also the intentions of how they came to be now um, I asked the leading question that we haven't explored too much, uh, and that is, uh, who are these people who are behind? Because there has to be, you know, they didn't just 
dream this up they had to have an agenda that means that they had some previous knowledge not only must these people who founded it like huge de pain peter the hermit saint bernard clever not only did they have an agenda uh, and a knowledge but it indicates that they must have been associated to an even older kind of tradition or philosophy or chain of insights and uh, when they send this what i call the action group down to the holy land starting excavations and stuff they must have been looking for something so should we just go to the heart of the matter <laughs> right here and now <laughs> yeah i mean at least according to my tradition you know the the templars uh, and and even uh, saint bernard of clairvaux himself believes that there was a primordial tradition mm. there was a uh, an ancient tradition that had passed on certain spiritual and technological ideas uh, and that and that it had become fragmented uh, across many lands and so the goal, the, the raison d'etre of the Templars, if you will, was to seek out these different traditions that were a part of this original primordial tradition and to re-assimilate the, uh, the teachings and the philosophies. And uh, if there were... Uh, if they were holding on to certain sacred artifacts or uh, uh, believed technologies to uh, and, and manuscripts to acquire them and to bring them back to Europe. Mm. And uh, many people believe that this is really what ultimately led to the Renaissance in, uh, uh, in Europe was these ideas being brought back. And, uh, but but do you think that uh, they found what they were looking for? Uh, well, that's the, that's, the, that's the real question. You know, some people believe, <laughs> you know, some people say it was the Holy Grail, others say it was the Ark of the Covenant, hmm. others say it was a number of other sacred artifacts and treasures. And, uh, yeah, I think I think they did find some of this, uh, and uh, I I also think that they were smart enough to realize that the power structures of the day were not responsible enough to to uh, take care of these things and uh, or would abuse them, and uh, so they spend a lot of time moving things around and hiding them and putting them in monuments and uh, yeah fa famous hiding places uh, has been suggested like uh, like uh, the um, uh, Roslyn Chapel people believe stuff has been hided there people believe that stuff has been hided in south of France yep. especially in in um, this place uh, René Le Chateau Yes. Uh, stuff has been hidden in, um, well, uh, all sorts of different places. Some even suggest the stuff has been hidden in America. Yes. Well, you know, there's uh, 
There is a Templar tradition that has has said that uh, Templars were traveling here to the Americas and they were trading with the uh, Mayans, for example. And you know, there's a there's a group down in in uh, there's there's a group called the White Indians of Darien who are in Panama. And what they are is they're a tribe down there in Panama that are Caucasians that have been existing down there for centuries before Columbus. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, of course, one of the theories is that, uh, that, you know, these were just came from these Templars that were coming over and, uh, you know, establishing trade down there and, and, and uh, some of their wealth may have actually come from gold and silver being brought back from the New World. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, well, uh, we know for a fact today that Vikings who were Templars yeah. were were in America, and uh, there's so many. We we can we, we should have a, our own program on that because yeah. so. But uh, one of the most famous is the Kensington Runestone, which now is proven proven genuine. And um, there is an interesting um, lead uh, about, uh, you know, this missing rune that has been proven, which which comes from the Templars, yes. which uh, they couldn't know about and, and stuff like that. Speaking of um, places that the Templars researched or looked up, there is two things that's a little interesting. Maybe you can shed some light on it. One is you mentioned already that they were in touch with Ethiopians and uh, you you know the, the work of um, Graham Hancock he yes. yeah he thinks that uh, the ark or one ark because if we read in the old egyptian lore we see that there were many items that can be described as the ark yes. uh, down the, back then but one of them sh- uh, is uh, apparently still in Ethiopia but many people think the Templars actually robbed it and the other another interesting uh, connection that can't be overlooked is the I, I'm not sure if it's called the Mandeans but there are yes. worshippers of Saint John Yes. That lives in uh, John the Baptist. That lives in um, in uh, southern Iraq, or they used to do uh, until the invasion. And we also know that the Templars, like the Masons, held the John tradition, especially in high That's esteem. Correct. So something's going on here. Yeah. yeah in fact. Yeah, the the in, and not just the Mandeans, but the the Cathars also had this John, this secret John tradition. I mean, in fact, one of the uh, one of the most uh, one of the the texts that the Cathars were accused of uh, protecting was it was a book called the the Questions of John, which was believed to originally come from the Bogomils. But it was a a Gnostic text uh, that emphasized both John the Baptist and John the Evangelist and John of Patmos and uh, kind of uh, passed on this secret tradition related to to John. And uh, did they regard these three as the same person? They regarded them as as aspects of the same archetype. Right. Right. 
Yeah. So they, they, in a way, they, they did. I mean, it was, uh, uh, and, and the reason why was because the Greek John is Ioannis. And Ioannis has an emphasis on the uh, Greek letters I, O, and A, mm -hmm. which were the Gnostic name for God. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in fact, you, there's an old Templar seal, an old Templar Abraxas seal that was found in some of their documents that uh, has the Gnostic uh, figure known as Abraxas on it. Mm -hmm. Along with the letters I, A, and O, uh, and it's it's because of this. It was it was the secret Gnostic name of God, but it was also within the name Ioannis or John. Isn't that a fish fish god or something? Yeah, o Oannis was the fish god. Yeah. So yeah. and and interestingly, uh, the fish god Oannis and John the Baptist both had the same feast day. <laughs> Oh. So, uh, yeah, oh. so there's probably a connection there. Yeah, yeah. Well, this fish god has some very interesting aspects, but we, we, we won't uh, go so much into that now. So so we can assume then that they got in touch with these... Uh, because all, all of these things, the Sufis, the Kabbalists, the Gnostics, and even the John worshippers, they're all mystical aspects of what we can call the Abrahamic tradition. Correct. So they are related. It's not so far-fetched as many would think. Uh, it's, you know, they should all actually be looked at distant cousins of the same spiritual tradition, just as you can see connections between Buddhism and Hinduism yep. and Sikhism and, yeah. Yep. So... Uh, many people, you, you know, it's very interesting to follow the spiritual uh, aspect of this, and it's just as interesting to follow the, should we say, the historic or the archaeologic, or maybe even we could call it the conspiracy aspect of this. I, I think we should try to, to enlighten both of them. If we go to the more material aspect uh, about looking for something and finding something, maybe that can account for their huge boost in numbers and how they suddenly went from being a research group to becoming a huge proto-corporation. Is that fair to assume? Yeah, you know, there, there's some speculation that the Templars, in fact, one of the things that they found when they were doing their digging mm -hmm. was certain evidence that uh, the standard European teachings of the Bible at the time were not not correct. Are you thinking of the hair of Jesus and Mary? Well, yeah, there, you know, there's some speculation that they, that there were bodies that were found. That there were also one of the uh, theories is as well that the further down they dug, the more they realized that there was no evidence for the Temple of Solomon in that spot, mm -hmm. which uh, you know would even today would be a huge uh, yeah. and the implications of that are huge religiously speaking and uh, and so you know what one theory is that they actually uh, were blackmailing the church wow that's why they were allowed to get us so much was because they were yeah. sitting on information that contradicted what the standard teachings were at the time 
But but why did they let the Cistercians alone when they crushed the Templars? I mean, obviously the Vatican must have known who's connected to who and who's behind what. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's like everything. There were, were circles within circles of, of, and maybe the circle knew certain things, but uh, most of the Cistercians didn't necessarily know. I think uh, I think we're just busy translating parts of a text. And they, they gave, for example, one page of text to 20 different people, and so... Yeah, yeah, compartmentalization. <laughs> Correct, yeah. So, uh, you know, there was somebody who, who got to read the full text when it was all translated, but the, but the uh, majority of people didn't didn't have any clue what the full text was about. They just had a support. Yeah, but people being innocent never stopped the Vatican from killing, torturing, uh, pillaging, etc. So, so I still think it's a little strange that they let a potential power competition be. Especially given the fact that uh, Cistercian circles were paramount in establishing the Knights Templars. Yeah, I think... Well, I think what happened was they early on the sister was very important in receiving these texts and translating them and so on and so forth. But later on, the Templars were just hanging on to things. They weren't turning them over. Or they, I mean, for example, the Zohar, uh, if indeed the Templars found the Zohar, uh, which uh, the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition says they did, then uh, the Templars were turning that over to the Cistercian Order or the Vatican. They turned it over to the Jewish communities in Spain. Oh, yeah. So um, that's a betrayal. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that means Cistercians didn't even have it. So it, uh, you know, the Templars were keeping things to themselves, and they weren't turning everything over. So the Cistercians probably didn't have all the information <laughs> so so maybe the Cistercian actually grew closer to the Pope then uh, during these 200 years probably yeah mm. correct. Mm. And, yeah, and then the order was just seen as seen as a threat and uh, had to be eliminated right well um, uh, there is also this phenomenon of the round churches. Uh, you were talking about sacred geometry and uh, these beautiful cathedrals, but when they built their own churches, they followed an another pattern, and uh, I would say a strange pattern compared to what was the norm. So how do we account for these round churches? Uh, they even f- they've even found round churches in America or, or ruins of what they suspect would be these famous round churches that we see popping up all over the temper-influenced uh, areas. Well, my own research is related to this actually goes back to uh you know the the Templar commandery that was in uh, Constantinople, mm-hmm. according to you know secret Templar tradition, this building was the place that uh, Hugh de Pains and Godfrey de Saint Omar had gone to initially to and were given the mission to start the Templar order, 
And this particular building was a round building like the ones that they later built. And uh, it, uh, it's now called the Little Hagia Sophia Mosque. Oh, but yeah. uh, originally it was a, a church. It was called the Church of St. Sergius and Bacchus. And the the building was built in about 527 uh, of our current era. And it was originally designed by a guy by the name of Anthemius of Tralis, who was a an alchemist. And... Uh, so this, this alchemist designed this building, which was this round building, and uh, later it became the Templar commandery there in, in uh, Constantinople. Mm -hmm. And later still it became a, a mosque. But all of the round, at least according to my research, it's all of the round Templar buildings were all based off of this building that was in Constantinople. In fact, not only that, but there are certain carvings on the ledges uh, that underneath ledges of the of this building, on the inside of this building, and uh, these are geometric patterns. And the on the only other building that that can be found these exact same geometric patterns is Rosalind Chapel in Scotland. Right. So, uh, you know, that's one of those proofs that there's a Templar connection. Yeah. Yeah, but you have a round church in London. Yep. And you have them in Bornholm in ruins in uh, between Denmark and Sweden. Yep. So, so it was a widespread uh, architecture they were doing, and uh, it has to have had spiritual reasons too, not just a memorial for the first church. Yeah, from what from what I can gather, you know, it started out as based on an octagonal design floor plan, right, right? And then it, uh, you know, it became rounded, uh, but that. Uh, you know, that octagonal floor plane was with kind of a central dome. You know, it was based on the number eight. Yeah. And that number eight was significant because it represented what in the Gnostic tradition was known as the Agawad, or the, the eighth sphere of consciousness that was beyond this world. And... Uh, to the Gnostics, it was no coincidence, for example, that like if you take the name Jesus in Greek and you transfer every Greek letter to its numeric value and then add up those numbers, the name Jesus adds up to 888. Right. And to the Gnostics, this was proof that uh, he represented the Agawad, or this eighth sphere of consciousness that was beyond this physical world. Yeah, these this eightfold in numerology or or or, or ritmosophy is better to say is is an old tradition. We find it in the eight petaled flower or rose, yes. the holy, sacred sacred blossom, yes. the Eleusian mysteries and stuff. So so these are old things, and it indicates that the Templars actually did well. Either they found they got connected to old traditions, or at least they researched it and rediscovered it and perpetuated it. Yes. 
Yeah, and I, I, I believe there's enough between the architecture they were building and the things that they were carving in, in the groups that we know they were associating with to, to suggest that, yeah, they were trying to research into these early mysteries mm. and uh, some of this knowledge they were bringing back with them into Europe. So, so we see here a picture because we've been throwing out a lot of names and to many, most of our listeners, I'm guessing many of these names are very obscure and unknown. But I think we can see a bigger picture here. And that is that for whatever reason, they did connect with older traditions and they brought them back to Europe. But after they got crushed, uh, they had to find new pastures and like you said many of them fled and, and re-emerged within existing alternative groups but many people believe that they also actually went to I mean you said the Renaissance was brought about from this yes. and uh, uh, which also is an indication that they had an agenda to flood Europe with uh, the Catholic hegemony, with, um, should we say, anti-counterculture traditions. But many people believe that they fled to the New World uh, because we know for a fact that the day, Friday the 13th, when they burned uh, the the grandmaster Jack de Molay on on the stake and many also think that this is where the uh, superstition of Friday the 13th being a bad thing comes from but the big Templar fleet you mentioned that they had their own sailing fleet it just disappeared with all the treasures when they knocked on the doors to take down the people. Many people had fled and the fleet had fled. And Jack de Molay, the only reason they took him was that he refused to, to fly. Isn't that so? That, that's correct. Yeah, they had a, yeah, they had an entire fleet that just disappeared the night before. And they'd taken, as you mentioned, uh, all, most of the treasures and everything else with them. And uh, which means that they had secret knowledge ahead of time mm. that they were going to be suppressed. And and it may be, and it, there has been some speculation that uh, this knowledge came from uh, an ultimatum was given to Jack de Molay that they either had to, to join the Knights Hospitalier or they were going to be suppressed. Mm. And uh, when Jack de Molay refused to join, uh, he knew they were probably going to get be suppressed, and so they probably prepared for it and got everything out of there ahead of time. Mm. Mm. Uh, but do you think uh, the the question isn't uh, that because this is a fact? The question is where did they go and where did the treasure go? Well, the, yes, there, there, there's, of course, lots of speculation that they came to the Americas and uh, people talk about the money pit in Nova Scotia and uh, is a early berry place for, for the treasure. Uh, there, are, there are Indian tribes, indigenous Indian tribes in the United States that to this day still talk about their early associations with the Templars. Mm. 
and uh, and then of course you find uh, you know landmarkers and everything else, and that seem to suggest that uh, this treasure was, uh, or certainly there were Templars that were moving inland, mm. and uh, may have been bringing their treasure with them. So that's the great mystery. Yeah, imagine if that was uh, rediscovered uh, in our time. <laughs> if we shout to the history books. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm I'm rooting for that. <laughs> yeah, there there is a there is a tradition that has suggested that these again these these treasures, rather than all being buried in one place, uh, were buried in many different places. Mm. With the idea that uh, you know that way there's no one group of people that could. Uh, grab onto it and have absolute power and abuse that power. That makes sense. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, covered, uh, we have had uh, one program already. Uh, we're going to, uh, and we've recorded another at this point, at this interview. It's not published yet, but it will be very soon. Both of those programs substantiate very heavily based on evidence and 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 some of it i mean it's so it's so uh, revolutionary that because it's not just theories and speculations it's actually practical information that can be verified and and we are in process of verifying it and that connects it to the rosicrucians yes. and then the masons and then uh, as you said oak island i think we'll we'll explore this a little more in part two after the break okay let's do that and then we'll try to tie it up onto modern times and see you know if there is signs of a survival of a tradition uh, regarding the templars very good mm. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome back to part two. We're talking with Tim Hogan, Hello. the grandmaster of a surviving Templar group called Osti or Circes. I'll, I'll ask you later to, to clear that up for us, uh, Tim. Okay. But uh, right now we've come to the post-1314 area after the Templars has have been abandoned by a plot between the Vatican and the French king. I guess the, the, the French king was the most, most powerful in Europe at the time? He was, and he was uh, the one who was engaged in a lot of wars. So the king of France, who was Philip the Fair at the time, he, he was engaged in a lot of wars. And uh, he had a lot of power and influence over the Vatican, and uh, he needed money to do his wars. And uh, the Templar Order was an easy target to try to get money from. And, uh, some some believe that he he was aware that the Templars had uh, a lot of secret wealth that other people didn't know about, and uh, he was going after it. 
And uh, uh, but obviously he didn't have uh, completely control of Europe because there was many which countries uh, were reckoned as uh, safe havens at the time. Well, when the Templars were suppressed, uh, tradition holds that, that there were a couple places that they were able to to go to within Europe itself. The two prominent places were Portugal, uh, which had its own authority, and Scotland, because mm. uh, Robert the Bruce of Scotland had already been excommunicated from the church and so he was defiant against the church anyways and so it was very easy for uh, Templars to go to there and uh, have safe hiding in a country where the king wasn't going to comply with papal orders anyways uh, there's also uh, legends of them fleeing to Ireland and, and to Switzerland and a number of other places as well yeah um, yeah you mentioned the Teutonic Order. I talked with the Grandmaster of the Teutonic Order uh, ten years ago, and he claimed that uh, it was official lore in their group that they got Templars, uh, surviving Templars. So Germany was reckoned also as, uh, or, or I mean, Germany didn't exist back then, but German areas were safe. Yeah, and uh, facts. This brings up another interesting movement that was said to have uh, come about much later, uh, 300 years later, which was the Rosicrucian movement. Mm. And uh, according to the Rosicrucian manifestos at that time, they talk about this mysterious founder of the Rosicrucian order named Christian Rosicruz who is described as being dressed in Templar dress and going to all of the places in the Middle East that the Templars had secret associations with and bringing back knowledge. And some people believe that it was a allusion to the Templar tradition itself. And in fact, we know that uh, within Germany there there was a group known as the Militia Crucifera Evangelica, which existed in the area of Tübingen, and that uh, uh, Frederick the Duke of Württemberg was in fact the Grand Master of, of this tradition there. And uh, According to, uh, there's a book known as the Neometria from about 1598, 1599. Yeah, the one of Simon Studion? Yeah, that's correct. It's, so this book is actually dedicated to the Militia Crucifera Evangelica, which was believed by many to have been this secret Templar tradition that was existing in Germany at the time. That's so interesting because uh, we, uh, in our last show, uh, and, and this program will uh, be the one after that, we did talk about how Francis Bacon and his compadres were connected to the freethinker milieu around the court in Tübingen. That's correct. In fact, Francis Bacon was, we know, in association with Johann Valentin Andrea who is credited and associated with the Rosicrucian Manifestos. And some people believe that Francis Bacon's 
uh, you know, was was adopted at, at a young age, and that his mother was actually secretly Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. And Queen Elizabeth herself was also said to be one of the involved in this militia crucifer evangelical. That's uh, interesting, but according to the research of uh, Peter Amundsen, a Norwegian who has discovered some huge codes, yes. yeah, he holds now that, uh, and again, he follows the evidence. For instance, he didn't want uh, Bacon's nephew, Neville, to be involved in this because he was he was convinced it uh, the Shakespearean plays were authored by Bacon alone but when he was confronted with some codes that a brilliant scholar named Brenda James discovered he had to admit that uh, Neville also was involved and he himself found codes indicating also Neville now the reason I'm mentioning this is that in the same vein he discovered that King James oh, yeah. was involved in this project I'm not saying that all of these people sat down and wrote Shakespeare but the Shakespeare plays were a part of the new installation of the of what the farmer actually claims the new era that was coming of enlightenment and people he he has found was involved was King James and Ben Johnson and a lot of others and he thinks now that what they did was to bring sacred Templar artifacts from Scotland and over to the new Scotland Nova Scotia okay and um, uh, so obviously, these 300 years that has gone from uh, 1314 to 1614, isn't 1614 actually the official date of the first Rosicrucian Manifesto? Well, it is, but as early as 1603, Queen Elizabeth held a ball in which she had Indigo Jones, who you mentioned, design the costumes for the ball. And uh, one of the costume designs was named A Rosy Cross. Wow. In which, uh, you know, so there's this Rosicrucian reference in Queen Elizabeth's court prior to the release of the manifestos. Yeah, yeah, we, we find uh, examples of the symbol too in earlier times. For instance, you mentioned uh, the Islamic connection. Yeah. Yes. There is this great uh, autodidact, I think he was, Belgian co a mystic called Sar Hieronymus, who wrote yes. uh, about the Islamic roots of RC. And uh, we found that there were some Sufi groups that used the uh, symbol of the rose and the cross. Yes. But but if we see then that in these 300 years, not only did Templar lore survive separately, like something here, something there within different groups, Knights of Christ, Teutonic, etc., but there must have been a core of guardians who actually had artifacts like the menorah, because you can see, when you see the codes in, for instance, the tomb of Shakespeare, you'll see it's directly, they mentioned the ark and the menorah. Yes. menorah. So obviously they had these things, yes. and that means that they were guardians, they were survivors of the Templar all the way to the Renaissance and the Reformation. Correct. So what is, does your tradition say about this? Do do they pinpoint any particular... Do they, For instance, is King James known to have been a uh, guardian of this? Yeah, in fact, King James 
was, uh, uh, yes, in fact, uh, he was, according to our tradition, uh, he had been actually been initiated hmm. uh, into some of the Templar mysteries, and in fact, uh, one of the one of the groups that was forming within Scotland very early on was what was to become known as Freemasonry. Mm. And uh, but uh, Freemasonry was, for example, the the earliest Masonic manuscripts, the earliest Masonic document that can be pointed to something called Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. Uh, goes back to something called the Gothic Manuscript. The Gothic Manuscript dates from the late 1300s, so not too long after the Templar suppression. And in this document, it actually mentions, it talks about, it says Freemasonry was founded after the flood, after Hermes discovered two pillars, one to withstand fire and one to withstand water. And hidden within these pillars were the secret arts and sciences that uh, were uh, that Freemasonry was said to be built on. So these are all, these are apparently the pillars of Masonry, Jaikin and Boas, right? Correct, correct. And what's interesting about this is this exact same story about these hollow pillars being discovered by Hermes. Uh, the only other place where you find that exact same story prior to 1300 is with the Druze in Lebanon. Wow. And of course, you know, that's part of their, their myth and their, their veneration of Hermes as a prophet. And, uh, of course, in the, in the Rosicrucian manifestos, they talk about Christian Rosicruits going to Lebanon. Right. You know, learning and learning these things there, and so all of these things tie in. I mean, for example, at the Hagia Sophia itself in, in Istanbul or former Constantinople, you know, if you, all you have to do is look at the ceiling, the side ceiling. Yeah, I done that there. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, and there's yeah. there there are rose crosses that are depicted there, and they they come from. Uh, originally, there being crosses, and then when uh, Islam took it over, they, they they painted the rose over it, and so it ended up forming these rose crosses. And, uh, you know, to the the word, the reason why Islam used that is that the word for rose in Arabic is ward, which is very similar to the Arabic word for prayer or meditation, which is weird. And so it was a, right. it was, uh, the, the, the rose itself was a symbol for, for meditation. Yeah. I, I guess uh, the Druze, did they call Hermes for Idris? Is that the word they use? Oh, that, so that, that, that was the Sabian. Okay. So in the Quran, it talks about the people of the book, which are Jews, Christians, Muslims, and Sabians. And everyone knows who Jews, Christians, and Muslims are, but very few people know who the Sabaeans were. Mm. Well, the Sabaeans venerated Hermes as a prophet, and so the Muslims just said, look, you can keep worshipping Hermes, but you now need to call him Idris. Mm. 
And uh, Mr. Bean said, okay, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, so, that's a good deal. <laughs> yeah, that's a good deal. So, so that's, you know, uh, so that's that tradition. Some have suggested that the Mandeans, both the Mandeans and the Druze, uh, came out of the Sabines. Yeah, because they all have a very similar structure with the degrees, initiations. It, it all sounds, in fact, it's very similar to masonry in, in, in the structure. Right. So it may be a proto-mason. But then again, you have other researchers. Uh, I think it's the Hiram Key who ties it to, but this is, of course, older. They tie it to Egypt and to uh, the survival of the old ancient Egyptian lore? Um, well, you know, that, for example, the Druze, they say they originally came out of Egypt. Okay, so they're so agreeing. They're agreeing, yeah, mm. in, in that regard. Now, you know, the hierarchy, for example, the uh, premises is, uh, you know, they, they have all kinds of other things. That they yeah, they, the killing of Sekven and Tatao is supposedly the, the right. killing of Hiram Abif. Right, which the Druze don't have anything like that. But no. They do, the Druze, for example, do venerate uh, the pharaoh Akhenaten in particular, hmm. being uh, related to their tradition. And, of course, uh, Akhenaten's had an interesting place in history because he was the first monotheist uh, yeah. uh, leader. Yeah, and that fits with the Abrahamic religions who insists on there only being one God. Correct. Yeah. But, you know, many many conspiracy theorists and um, many right-wing extremists, they blame this tradition, uh, at least as it's surfacing in masonry, because that's what we're talking about now, basically. We're talking about... Masonic myths and traditions, they claim is all Jewish, but uh, from uh, what we are pointing to now, it's much older than Judaism, isn't it? Yeah, I mean the the you know the, there is one belief that Judaism itself actually came out of uh, the Phoenician tradition, and of course the Phoenicians and the Egyptians were very close, even having the same gods and everything else. Mm. We know that uh, many of the uh, passages in the, the Torah, for example, come directly from Egyptian temple walls. And there are even things that are in the New Testament that uh, suggest this. I mean, for example, in the story of the raising of Lazarus in the New Testament, uh, in the story Lazarus is raised by Jesus in Bethany. And uh, in, it's an interesting story because it talks because they go to Jesus and say, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus basically says, well, is he in the tomb? And they say, yes. And uh, they say, and then he says, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go get him eventually. And he waits several days before going to, to do, take care of him. But uh, what's interesting is Lazarus in Hebrew is El Asur. And El in Hebrew is, is one of the articles for God. And Asur was the ancient Egyptian name for Osiris. And he was raised in Bethany, which in Hebrew is Bet-Anu. And Bet means house in Hebrew. And Anu was the ancient Egyptian abode of the dead. So in this story you have 
Jesus raising the god Osiris in the house of the dead. Yeah, and, and, and the links between Osiris and Jesus are getting more and more known. Uh, yes. I, mean, uh, I think, was it one of these modern um, counterculture videos, was it Zeitgeist, I think, that maybe pointed yes. out this? Yeah. Yes. So, so it's getting known that, uh, but it's been known all the time that Christianity is an amalgam of many sure. <laughs> former traditions. But, but if you go back to the Masons, then um, you said that the, you, you you pointed to early Masonic traces. But we, what what's the earliest organized Masonry that we know? Well, the earliest place where we first find uh, mention of signs and passwords and things that we normally associate with masonry today is is from what's called the Shaw Statutes of 1598-1599. So the Shaw Statutes were, were written at the same time the Neometria published in Germany. And the Shaw Statutes were written by William Shaw, who was a uh, advisor of King James. Right. And uh, <laughs> they they talk about one of the things they mention is that the purpose of Freemasonry is to perpetuate the Hermetic art. And of course, they they use those words. They use those words. And of course, the Hermetic art of memory at the time was uh, the work of Giordano Bruno. And uh, who was a very famous Hermetic philosopher. That mm. burnt on the fire by the Catholics. Yes, that's correct. He was burnt at the stake, just like Jack de Molay. Mm. So I, I see a very... I mean, it can't be too comfortable for you, being in a tradition where all the grandmasters are burnt alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> I guess you accept that as part of the job. <laughs> <laughs> Going down in a place of glory. <laughs> yeah, of something. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I read somewhere that... No, I wasn't read. I was told this. This is very obscure, but I think the listeners will find it a little interesting. In uh, okay. this tradition, a Western esoteric tradition, Egyptian... They had the opposite thing than, uh, you know, in, in uh, India and many places they burn people uh, when they're dead. But uh, the opposite uh, is uh, the norm here. They want to preserve the body because uh, in according to this tradition I'm citing, um, they think that <clears throat> when you die, you need a lot of time to adjust to the new state of consciousness because it's a shock for the body to, no, not for the body, for the consciousness to be, you know, not being expressed through the senses anymore. And in fact, uh, agreeing with the Tibetans that uh, the heirs are the last sense to, to stop working. Now, uh, my point is here that the the Catholics, when they raided and, uh, you know, they, they possessed, took all this old sacred knowledge when they built their church and their religion. And, uh, of course, they burned a lot of stuff out on the market, but they had their own copies in the Vatican. They had their own... Uh, 
you know, knowledge that was kept to themselves. And, they, and here's the conspiracy theory, that they knew that by burning someone alive, they would shock them so much that in the consciousness that when they reincarnated, <laughs> yes. they would be confused so that, you know, they couldn't come back. Because if you burn enlightened people, uh, the hope here is that you disconnect them from coming back in uh, even more enlightened than before. Yeah. So that burning people was actually uh, not just one thing is to to crack to smack them down, but then it's to adding insult to injury is to to burn them is trying to destroy quote unquote their soul. Of course, you can't destroy a soul, yeah. but to disrupt it. Sure. Your, your thoughts about that? <laughs> well, I you know I I. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, there are references to reincarnation, arguably within the New Testament itself, for example, or, uh, for example, uh, the disciples go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we've heard John the Baptist, is, or we've heard that the prophet Elias has come back. Mm. And Jesus says he has come back, but people haven't, don't recognize him yet. Mm. And, and it says, and then the disciples understood he was talking about John the Baptist. Right. So the implication is that John the Baptist was the reincarnation of the prophet Elias. Mm. But uh, we know that there was certain reincarnation ideas in the early church, and that the, for whatever reason, they they changed that. But privately, uh, they were probably aware of these ideas and something having to do with well 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 actually actually and this is interesting even though the church eventually proposed the idea of reincarnation uh, which was very strong in in europe before uh, christianity became the state religion yeah. uh, but actually they never officially banned that doctrine yeah that's true so so uh, you know if you want to be like a bureaucrat about it you could still be a Christ <laughs> christian and believe in reincarnation of course of course <laughs> well, i mean a catholic and believe in it but but back to track here so we have the masons then and 1598 you say they have some organized uh, clues that's even before the rosicrucians now according to the research of the Swede Daniel Ronstam and also the separate research of the Norwegian Peter Amundsen, both of them have found that um, the uh, Masons uh, was behind the Rosicrucians because many people believe that the Rosicrucians became uh, came first because of the probably because of the founding of the United Grand Lodge was much later. But they think that the Rosicrucianism was a project within these proto-Masonic circles. Okay. Is this uh, in accordance with your tradition? Well, my my tradition is suggested that look, there was the Templars and they fled the different places and they had to take on new identities in different locations mm -hmm. and in uh, Scotland for example they became uh, Masons and uh, in Germany they became Rosicrucians uh, and uh, eventually those Rosicrucians in Germany were also associating with these Masons that were in Scotland and England because uh, it was all the same tradition. Mm. It just had gone under different names. And, and then meanwhile in France, 
in other places, the, you know, the Templars continued to exist just under the, the Templar name, privately, secretly. Mm. So, uh, and in uh, Portugal, they continued to exist under the name of the Mighty Christ. But these were all the, the same tradition, that they just adopted different names in different places based on what was needed to survive. Yeah. Because there are many groups existing today claiming to have genuine Templar lineages. Yes. But maybe that can account for them, because uh, if uh, what you just said is correct, then uh, there would be many different groups <laughs> claiming to be right. genuine. But but the Rosicrucians uh, and the Masons, what, what happened when uh, the U United Grand Lodge established itself? Because it seems that after that, they became like a Vatican within Masonry, and many groups popped up which often is referred to as fringe Masonic groups just because they are not acknowledged by the United Grand Lodge, this Vatican in England of, of established, yeah. you know, authoritarian, central ruled masonry. Because before well, the United Grand Lodge, it seems that masonry was rather autonomic. Yeah, well, I mean, for example, in Scotland, you know, the Grand Lodge of Scotland doesn't tell lodges how to do their ritual because most of the lodges uh, existed prior to the yeah. formation of the Grand Lodge. Mm. Whereas in England, you have to remember that the uh, English lodges were all started by, by Scottish traveling Scottish lodges. And uh, when, the, when the Grand Lodge of England was formed, we know who the people were who formed it. And most of them all belonged to a group known as the Kabbalah Club. And uh, it was... Uh, Kabbalah Club? That's not very refined. Yeah, the Kabbalah <laughs> Club. That was the name of it. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, That's very straightforward. Yes, yes. They belonged to this group. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have the minutes of the Kabbalah Club. We know what they did. We know what they were discussing. They discussed a lot of the works of people like Yakabema and others. Mm. And uh, they also were discussing alchemy. And, uh, for example, one of the members of the Kabbalah Club was Jean Theophilus Desigarier. And Desigarier is the one who restructured the degrees under the Grand Logic of England. Mm. And uh, he's the one who many people believe created the current third degree of Freemasonry. And he was also best friends with Sir Isaac Newton, and they used to do alchemical experiments together. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a much more interesting uh, secret history there. Mm. And uh, but but after 1717, when the Grand Lodge of England was established on St John the Baptist Day, mm. <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, it kind of became set itself up as the authority for all masonry in the world. And That's pretty megalomaniac. I mean, uh, if anyone should uh, do such a Vatican uh, move, it should be the Scottish. I heard there is a Lodge Zero in Scotland claiming to be the very first yes. official Masonic Lodge. Yeah, there's a couple lodges in Scotland that are quite old that fight over who is the oldest. Right. Uh, Kilwinning is one of them, and Melrose is, is one of the others. Clever and thing to call itself Lodge Zero, because nothing can be 
prior to that. <laughs> correct, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, there, I mean, there are some very old lodges of old minutes that go back uh, very far, mm. and uh, but they they there, there's a th- interesting thing that happened uh, in around 1730. What happened was the the ritual started to change. Mm. Prior to that time, the degrees in masonry were largely centered around Noah and his ark. Hmm. And uh, starting about 1730, it began to switch to be around, based around King Solomon's temple. Yeah, and Hiram Abiff and these Jewish references. That's right. right. But but what appears to be happening there, what Desigalier was trying to do, was he was aware of the neometria of, of Germany. Yeah, of Siemens Studio that we mentioned in part one. Studio, mm. which was a whole description of King Solomon's temple. Ah. And Hiram, in the Masonic tradition, was really just Hermes. And uh, if you take the Hebrew Hiram, Mm. and you transliterate it into Greek. So you just take the main consonants, H-R-M, which are, you know, Hebrew doesn't have vowels. No. If you you were to to rephrase that into the Greek, it becomes Hermes, which is, of course, is Hermes. Mm. So, uh, you know, there's a whole other Gnostic and alchemical and Kabbalistic tradition there. Yeah, but this is very interesting because I I wasn't aware of this 1717 ritual focus because if they are talking about Noah or or Gilgamesh, yes, yes, say because that's the older origin, then there is a tie to the antediluvian civilization. That's exactly right. Hmm. And in fact. Uh, Anderson, who wrote the first Constitutions of Freemasonry, uh, referred to Freemasonry as the Noahite religion, or in other words, the religion of Noah. And so this, so so to say it in clear words, we're dealing here potentially with a survival of the lore of the antediluvian civilization. Correct, and and this is of course what the Templars themselves. We're supposedly trying to do. They're trying to get back to this primordial tradition. Yeah. And uh, and you know you have Francis Bacon alluding to this idea with like for example his New Atlantis book. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. That, this is huge, people. This is huge because traditionally within Western esotericism there is this spiritual interpretation which of course is is uh, you know very important that's yeah, what it's so. about but there is also this tendency to refuse to to take to take seriously a materialist aspect of this history but you cannot if this have a literal truth in addition to a spiritual truth then you have to acknowledge that if there was an antediluvian civilization, they did have some sort of technology. And if they did have some sort of technology, these sacred objects, the ever-burning lamp, the menorah, 
the the Ark of the Covenant, which apparently have some uh, radioactive features, etc., then you have to acknowledge that these things may also have a ma- machination aspect, uh, a technological aspect. Yes. How how do you relate to to this? It is a controversial thing within the spiritual uh, circles, but what's your take on it? My take is that absolutely that there were old technologies that uh, have been forgotten uh, and that uh, some of, even though there is a spiritual tradition being passed down and, and everything else, there was also talk of earlier, more advanced technologies. I mean, for example, a good example of this is the Ethiopian text known as the Kebrekanesque, mm-hmm. which talks about King Solomon's flying craft wow. that he used to fly between Jerusalem and uh, Ethiopia to visit the Queen of Sheba. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, there are legends in India and Pakistan of King Solomon having this exact same flying craft. In fact, mm. Nicholas Rorick wrote in his diary entry, Nicholas Rorick was a very famous mystic who was involved in a number of esoteric traditions. He was an advisor to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, actually, at one point in time. But he yeah, and, and, if, and in fact, just let me interject quickly that he also is the origin of, uh, the conspiracy theories won't like this, but he's, he's also the origin of the United Nations. It's true. And <laughs> because he pitched that idea to, to the American governor, to the elite leader. Yeah, he also, he also is the one who recommended the Great Seal put on the American, be put on the American currency. Yeah. Uh, so, but he, but he was, uh, he recorded in his early diary entries of seeing a flying, what we would now call a UFO. Mm. And, uh, and, uh, in his own diary entry, he talks about how, uh, the locals, when he was in, uh, traveling through Asia and he saw this, the locals said, oh, that's just King Solomon's flung craft. So, right. so these 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 low Pakistan had the exact same story as the Ethiopian Coptic But but when you are saying India and Pakistan, are you referring to Jewish or Christian groups in these countries, or are you referring to to Hindu? Yeah, he, he didn't he didn't specify. He just he just said the locals. Yeah, yeah, that's Rurish. But you you said that there were stories about King Solomon. Oh yeah, this was the the Coptic tradition in Ethiopia. Right. Yeah, but but you didn't you say that they also had the same uh, story about yeah. Solomon in in the East Far East? Yeah, they have. A, well, they have a they have this text called the Kebrekanesque, which talks about King Solomon's flying craft. And, and are these Christian groups in India, like Thomas Church and stuff like that, or are these Hindu? Hindu groups. Oh, the, well, that Nicholas Rorick was associating with? I, I don't know. Okay. Nicholas Rorick just talks about it in his diary entry. Okay. So. Yeah, because that's famous. Yeah, he he's, he had some experience there in uh, in Tibet or somewhere. Uh, yes. We, you can only call it a, a flying saucer, a flying disc. Yeah. That's correct, yeah. In fact, I think he used the word disc. <laughs> Yeah, he, he said it was uh, yeah, like a big oval in the sky. Yeah, shiny. Yeah, that's interesting. So, 
Yep. So, so we can assume then that you know, if you want to uh, take this all this seriously and and literally, there is and and in esoteric there is often double or triple meanings of things. So, so it wouldn't just be a spiritual tradition; it would also be a historic tradition. Well, if you, if, I mean, if you take even uh, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis book itself, he talks about you know this this mysterious culture that uh, was referred to as the College of Solomon. It had all of these technologies; they knew the entire world. No one knew of their existence. Mm. And in the story, it says they got all of this from this book that was given to them when they noticed there was this giant flying thing in the sky that looked like a cross. Mm. So they rode their boat out to it, and it had some sort of force field that kept them from coming any closer, and then it spit a book out to them. Wow. So they got that book, and they brought it back, and they started developing these technologies. And that's what Francis Bacon wrote about in his New Atlantis. So, you know. Wow. And and uh, and we have seen that brilliant minds who were associated with this tradition invented right. innovative technology like Da Vinci. He was very early on. Right. There was this alchemist in 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 uh, right. Prague or wherever it was who who I think he made U-boats or something. Yes. And Francis Bacon himself, he he wasn't a modest man in this area. He wanted to know everything that was to know. That's right. <laughs> and invent and I mean, it's no, no, it's not strange that they call him the father of science because uh, That's right. he went. So so it can't be coincidental that people who are associating with with this philosophy scientist, let's call him that. It's yes. a term I picked up from uh, Walter Bosley. So these philosopher scientists, unlike the materialist scientists, they invented a lot of groundbreaking uh, ma- machines way ahead of their time. They were like Teslas of their time. That's correct, yeah. I mean, Da Vinci himself, for example, he Leonardo Da Vinci, he... He designed the lock system that was eventually used on the Panama Canal. Hmm. I mean, he, he was so far ahead of his time in terms of the things that he was uh, coming up with. In fact, there's a great story when he figured out how to make scuba gear. Hmm. He, he writes in his, his diary entries about how he has discovered this great incredible technology and then the next day in his diary entry he writes and of course this can never be revealed to the rulers today because man will totally abuse it <laughs> you know so he had the foresight to know that people weren't ready for it yeah. but um, uh, we see that uh, this antediluvian tradition uh, survives and after they make the what I call the Vatican of the Masons we see a lot of fringe Masonic groups popping up that is small groups which remind us of Masons but who are much more autonomic in their um, organization so to speak yeah I mean I I think there you know there there have been in existence a number of traditions outside of Masonry that have existed and continue to exist uh, that are all part of this 
bigger tradition. Uh, masonry sometimes likes to think that it's the only game out there. Yeah. And many people think it is, but actually it's just one piece of a much bigger puzzle. Yeah, I, th- I think we ought to pinpoint to the fact that uh, there is even several Masonic orders, because when people are all the Masons, they control everything. The Masons, I often ask people, which, which Masonic mason? order are you referring to? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And they are perplexed. So, And that's just those who call themselves Freemasons. Yeah. We also have... Uh, Let's say the Martinists, for instance, which is a French Correct. tradition I know you've been associated with. Yes. Isn't it true that when you enter a Martinist lodge, they have the holy book on the altar opened at uh, the chapter of John? That's correct, yes. So again, we see a, a John connection. That's right. And you find that also within, for example, the early Grail legends. I, talk, I mentioned Percival by Wolfram von Eschenbach earlier. Yeah, and, and I was thinking when you're talking about the round structure, the knights of the round table. Yeah. <laughs> which knights are these? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, and in, in Percival, it talks about how the Grail king mm. within... Uh, the fish, Fisher king? Yeah, the Fisher king. So in, in the story... Parsifal actually becomes the new Grail King, and his brother and the Grail Maiden end up getting married, and they go off to India to form a new kingdom, wow. and they name their, their, the son John, and it says that thereafter all of the kings of this Grail Kingdom assume the name of John. Huh. And so... There's another example of this John thing showing up. And, uh, mm. Wow. Uh, and, you know, you find it showing up in the works of Leonardo da Vinci as well, a number of other places. Yeah, uh, time is is um, not at our side. We have to speed this process up because I want to okay. tie, tie it into modern world. So uh, okay. uh, I guess we, we can kind of skip the 18th and the 19th century because that's already well documented, isn't it? The, the survival from the, I guess, 1730 and onwards is pretty well documented. Pretty well documented, yes. Yeah. yeah. But uh, enter you and and your traditions, uh, your your groups. Yeah. What what are you involved in? What what are you representing here? Why am I interviewing you to talk about well, this? Well, <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm some grandmaster of the Order Sovereign du Temple Initiatique, mm-hmm. which is uh, a Templar lineage that um, used to just be called the Order of the Temple. We trace our lineage back to Bernard Raymond Strawberry Palaprat, who was a uh, one of the former Templar Grandmasters uh, around 1800. And uh, uh, Palaprat, at the time, revealed something known as the Larminius Charter. Mm-hmm. The Larminius Charter is a charter of Grandmasters from Jacques de Molay up to the modern time. Okay, so it's one of the surviving branches. Uh, one of the surviving branches. And this Larminius Charter was originally written in a Templar cipher code. And, uh, you know, there's been people who have who've speculated on whether this was really real or not. Uh, 
most of the time they they criticize the fact that the the Latin is too good to be the same over a long period of time, but actually the person who translated the cipher code standardized the Latin. But but can't this be carbon dated? Well, the problem is the original copy of it had gotten turned into the Louvre uh, during the... um, rise of Napoleon III, and there was a lot of unrest in France. Mm. And there is a, a receipt showing who this original charter was turned over to for safekeeping during the uh, during the war. Mm. And uh, it disappeared from there. So. Mm. But can the people who are named, uh, can they be verified, first of they all, as historical people? Yes, they can be verified as historical people. And, and can they be substantiated by circumstances to have belonged to a counter spiritual counterculture? Uh, yes. I mean, the people who turned in the Larminius Charter uh, can all be verified. And the person who was working at the Louvre, who received it can be verified, but yeah, no, no. I'm taking about the people who are mentioned as the chain of groundmasters. Oh yes, yes, yeah. The, the yeah, these people, uh, they all, yeah, they all have some part to play uh, historically. You can verify that they were all uh, secretly passing on, you know, some of these Gnostic philosophies, for example, in alchemical traditions and. Mm. Hermetic thought and Pythagorean thought, and uh, they were big endorsers of this. You can you can find it traces throughout history and uh, up to uh, Bernard Raymond Fabre Palafrat. And uh, so my my lineage came out of that. And then what happened was in about 1960, it was determined that uh, there was a new. Uh, there needed to be from about 1960 on a new wave of uh, Templar influence in the world. And at that point, uh, it, in order to make sure it was distinguished as an initiatic tradition, the Order of the Temple officially changed its name to the Sovereign Order of Templar Initiates okay. in order to emphasize this initiatic aspect and it used to be that they used to just recruit the high initiates from other traditions. Mm. And it was found that they, uh, many of these, for example, just because someone was a 33rd degree Freemason didn't necessarily mean they knew anything. Mm. Well, so, that's, sti- that's still the condition today. That, that's right. <laughs> so uh, in about 1980, the Grandmaster at the time, who was known as Raymond Bernard, who was a very famous esotericist in France, yeah. He, he established an outer organization known as Circe's International mm. as a school uh, to bring initiates into to make sure they understood everything that they needed to know okay. <laughs> prior to being considered for the Osti. Because mm. they weren't learning it elsewhere. Yeah, and, and the Osti is then in kind of the inner group of Circe's. Correct. So if yeah. they are educated in sources and they know the basics of esoterics, then they can enter the, the Templar initiate. 
Correct. The OCD, yeah, the, OCD group. Yeah, yeah, they're considered at that point, and they have to be sponsored. But uh, yeah, then they can be brought into the OCD, where there's private teaching in the temples. There's two curiosities I want to mention at this point. First of all, Raymond Bernard that you just mentioned, which incidentally sound a lot like Bernard Raymond that you right. mentioned before. <laughs> right. uh, by the way, Bernard Raymond, was he uh, living in, in uh, the traditional Qatar uh, area of France, uh, south, uh, Toulouse? He was. In fact, he had a house in Cours, France, which is not too far from Toulouse. And, uh, you know, he grew up in, in cords and, uh, he, uh, there, there are Templars to this day, for example, who still continue to live in his house. Right. So there are, there are, uh, old, uh, families there which, uh, are connected to, to Qatar and Templar traditions. That's right. So still yes. surviving, okay. Still, so, yes, still to this day. So uh, this Raymond Bernard, I want to have a question about him, but I, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, for those who doesn't know, he's also the father of the leader of uh, a new Rosicrucian group called Armorc, probably the most famous of them. Yes. And, um, so, so again, we have a link to the Rosicrucians here. But it's funny because this chap, Raymond Bernard, he actually sent me, uh, for many years ago, I, I incidentally came in touch with him and he sent me a book, which, a French book that I was looking for and I lost my copy in, uh, of all places, in um, Glastonbury. Yes. Uh, after I v visited the Chalice Well. Good. And so he sent me his copy of the book and wrote me a very nice greeting in the in the in in, in a sleeve in a cover of that. So so he mm. after you know he came on my good side after that. <laughs> <laughs> he was a very generous man. So when I I discovered when someone suggested put you on. Uh, and I researched you and I said, wow, you got ties to Raymond Bernard. That's a good uh, sign. That's a good synchronicity. <laughs> You're a hair of Raymond Bernard. I'm, I'm kind of, uh, it's kind of my duty to invite you on, man. <laughs> As a, good, thing he, good thing he gave you that book. <laughs> exactly. We, he scratched my back. Now I'm trying to scratch his post-mortem because yes. uh, unfortunately he, he moved on to the other world. But, um, now, the, my question about him, how did he get connected to this old uh, Templar tradition? Yeah, so he actually wrote about it in a book. He wrote a book called A Secret Meeting in Rome, and uh, which is available. Yeah, he, he sent me that book also. Very interesting book. Yeah, so... But man, many people say it should be interpreted symbolically and not literally. Well, it... I don't know. It is both. You know, it is about an actual historical uh, initiation that he involved. He was involved in in 1956. Mm. But uh, there are also symbolic elements right. throughout it. Uh, for example, he in the story he talks about being initiated into Templarism with another gentleman. So the two of them were being initiated together. Much like the two knights on one horse found on the Templar seal. And he refers to this person he was being initiated with under the name of John. 
specifically highlights that. <laughs> Again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, mm. you know, this is alluding to that Yonite tradition. And of course, uh, Bernard Raymond Fabre Palaprat in 1804 started the Yonite Church, which continues to exist to this day, which is a, which is a Gnostic church. Uh, Templar Church, and uh, for example, the excuse me, is this connected to all these? Today we have the EGC, EGU, yeah. EGA, these Gnostic churches. That yep. it's the same thing. Okay, all, mm. yeah, they're all connected. So that you know, this, for example, the AJC is is one of the these Gnostic churches, the Apostolic Yonite Church which is a Gnostic church that uh, goes, again, chase, traces their lineage back to Bernard Raymond, Pablo Palaprat. Yeah, they're, um, almost all of them uh, have EG in the name, like uh, it stands for Ecclesia Gnostica, yes, yes. and then you have Universalis, Catholic, yes, uh, yes, yeah. uh, Polostica, etc. Yeah, there's yeah. several mm. different ones out there, and they all, they all are tend to kind of associate and recognize each other. And, so it's uh, a mess. <laughs> it's a maze. Yeah, and, mo and, most, and most of them recognize also some sort of Templar connection with them at one point in time. Mm. And, uh, so there's, um, but they, you know, they all operate independently, and but they just kind of recognize each other. Yeah. You know? So there's no there's no Vatican in this area. But but what about no. Raimund Bernard? He he what was it in Istanbul? I think I remember. I read that he went when he was initiated. Yeah. Very very cloak and dagger story. Yeah yeah he you know he he in, he underwent a number of initiations. One in uh, one in uh, Rome. Another in Istanbul, which is, of course is. Uh, where that little Hagia Sophia mosque is, that Hugh de Paines and Godfrey the Saint Omar were also initiated at. But, but it's not so little. And, Why are you calling it little? It's big. Well, it's called it's called the little Hagia Sophia mosque. So it's 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 not the actual Hagia Sophia. Oh yeah, right. It's, a, it's another building that's yeah. nearby. I'm sorry. Near yeah. the yeah. yeah, so it's not you diminishing it. No. <laughs> it's, it's actually... In fact, it was built before the Hagia Sophia was built. Ah, so it's older. Yeah. And and today, is that uh, is that a church today, a museum or a mosque? It's a mosque now. Mm. It's, a, it's a mosque. There's, there's still people who worship there all the time. Yeah, because some churches survived, uh, some were converted to like the Hagia Sophia as a museum. Yeah. And some, and some became mosques. That's correct, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, but the Osti continues to, uh, be involved in working with, uh, world leaders of different spiritual traditions and esoteric traditions and trying to promote peace and and do the same work that Templars uh, we were doing originally back in the you know eleven mm. hundreds mm. of still meeting with different groups um this primordial tradition and trying to pass on protect mm. uh, the philosophies and the artifacts and the technologies uh, but but are you styling yourself as a Christian group? No, we have we have people of all different religious backgrounds. 
So we. So you're a non-confession. Yeah, we. We. I mean, we would. I, if we had to say some, if we had to pin ourselves, we would say we were Gnostic hmm. or uh, Hermeticists. But we, you know, we also. But we have Muslim members. We have Druze. We have a lot of Druze members. Hmm. We have. Uh, Christian and Jewish members. And, uh, Speaking of Istanbul, uh, that used to be, or it still is actually, is the stronghold of a very obscure Sufi tradition, which reminds correct. very much of, of masonry called the Bektashi. That's right. And that's like, a, just for those who doesn't know it, it's like a Western um, Sufism because it's been it's been very strong in Europe, in Albania, Kosovo, in Bosnia, in Macedonia, in Bulgaria, and uh, several places, and of course Turkey. So uh, is as a ties there. I mean, if Raymond Bernard was initiated into something in Turkey, I think I smell a Bektashi influence, maybe. Yes, well, those those ties are there for sure. They've continued to exist. Mm. We uh, as Templars, we continue to to have association with the Sufi, the with the Druze, with. Uh, you know, certain Coptic traditions, with certainly certain Kabbalistic traditions, uh, and then all the Gnostic churches as well. I mean, all all of these traditions that are passing on the uh, personal revelation and personal connection with the divine, mm. uh, we continue to have associations with, mm. and we continue to protect. Right. Yeah, well, that is a good thing that because if it's uh, something that the world really needs, then then it's more ecumenical, more uh, cooperation rather than fighting. Because conspiracy theorists love to pick on small autonomic spiritual groups, yeah. but it's very important people to remember, even if there is corruption within masonry or if there is corrupted masons or whatever. Remember one thing, people. Because every big religion have a heart, we can maybe say, of mystical uh, yeah. aspect to them, like Kabbalism in Judaism, like Sufism, like Gnosticism in, in Christianity. Remember that the opposite of all these, these mystical groups, are fundamentalists. And the fundamentalism is the fueling of the wars uh, right. and uh, fighting. You never see Sufis or Kabbalists running out in the street trying to kill people. No. <laughs> in fact, they are being killed by the fundamentalists. The fundamentalists hate That's them. Right. Do you, uh, who live in the so-called free world, well, we can't just debate that when it comes to this day and age, especially America, but do you find any problems with the big uh, authorities? Uh, well, you know, there's starting to be a, a shift. Uh, I mean, even even Pope Francis now is, is speaking things, preaching things more in terms of uh, Gnostic philosophy. But... Yeah, is that because he's a Franciscan monk? Um, possibly. Yeah, possibly. I mean, uh, yeah. There, there's... Uh, Oh, wait a minute, he's a Jesuit, isn't he? Not a Franciscan. Yeah, he came, he came from some Jesuit background and uh, other things, you know, and there, there's, yeah, he's been exposed to some things that not all the popes have. Ah, okay. uh, but there's, you know, he, he is more of a mystic at heart. And, uh, yeah. Uh, 
so, but there, there are, of course, you know, fundamentalist groups that, that try to persecute uh, the mystics and always have. I mean, uh, do you get stress, uh, flack from uh, fundamentalists in America? Oh, of course, yeah, of course. I mean, mm. they're they're scared to death that at, at the ideas that uh, my order endorses and. Just like how the Sufi are persecuted in in many areas, and the Druze are, are persecuted in many areas, and the Mandeans are persecuted in many areas. Mm. Uh, and 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 the Kurds, uh, what what's they call the fire uh, worshippers, uh, Zoroastrians? Yeah, yeah. The, I forgot the yeah, name. Yeah, the 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 uh, Yazidi, Yazidi, yes, Yazidi, exactly. Yeah. So, mm. you know, I mean. We tried to do what we can to to work with all of these groups to protect them as best we can and uh, to provide safety. So, so they know they know who. I mean, uh, if you present yourself, uh, they're not skeptical. Like, oh no, uh, they they realize that there is a common uh, oh, yeah. thread here. Yeah, that... I mean, when I, I was just in Lebanon a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you know, meeting with. Um, I was, a, I was attending a Druze shrine, for example, while I was there. Okay, so they're, they're not so archaic that they don't know what's going on uh, contemporary, spiritually in the world. No, they, they're, they're very aware. And, uh, But isn't Syria a stronghold for these traditions, or, or used to be until used the tragedy? Used to be, yeah, yeah, used to be. What, what, so what happens now? Uh, much stuff is being... these. Uh, I don't call them ISIS, because that's an insult to the Egyptian goddess. Yes, but these <laughs> IS people, aren't they uh, destroying everything of these old uh, traditions? Uh, they are, they're destroying it, and they're, they're also... also You there? Hey. There you are. Very good. Yeah, you you disappeared into cyberspace there. Really? It's so weird. I, it is. It is. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. It's very strange. No. Uh, pff, I, I have no idea what happened. Yeah, me too. Yeah, well, I've had I've used this before and, and hadn't had any problems. And I, so I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Uh, you know, I don't know why it wasn't working, but it's fixed now. And... Yeah, uh, so, so hopefully it should be good. Well, I guess it was to be expected because we've had the Oak Island curse plaguing us already, <laughs> yeah, and now we're the Templar curse haunting us on top. We're toast. <laughs> okay. Good. Yes, well, folks, you only missed about 10 minutes of us discussing, what was it, Daesh and fundamentalism, uh, yeah. Tim's new book. And then we accidentally dropped some of the biggest secrets known to mankind. <laughs> But I, I guess it wasn't meant to be. It's all gone into the astral plane, though, to that well, ether, rather, where it probably belongs. This is too bad. But never mind. Let, let's just take the cue and end it here. Sure, no problem. Uh, we have have gone on for two hours. Uh, I, I, it's just impossible to reconstruct. So uh got it. Let's let's end it. But but last point, you have a book out on the Templars. In fact, it's like a manual for people who identify with that path, right? Correct. And it's called uh, The Way of the Templar. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah, so my my book um, covers knights, a Templar lineage that traces throughout history and uh, that are currently existing today. Right. So I talk about Templars all throughout that book. And I have a whole chapter just on the Gnostics, but but I focus on Templar influence and uh, on Gnostic and Hermetic philosophies. And then I go and examine different groups uh, that are are practitioners of those uh, philosophies. And they can get it at Amazon, I presume? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Okay. So there you go, folks. And you can also check out uh, Tim's uh, stuff at our presentation page of him at our website whenever we get to put it out. That sounds good. Tim, yeah. it's been very enlightening. Yeah, that's great. Fourfold thanks for, <laughs> for coming on. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, great. Yes. Thank you for enduring the poor sound that haunted this program. It is not due to our incompetence. On the contrary, uh, the raw tape was almost inaudible. So, we have uh, spent more than 50 hours uh, the last eight months trying to fix it because we felt the conversation was worthy of being released. So, even if the sound was of an annoying quality, at least we've managed to restore it enough for you to to listen. And, And so we really hope you did enjoy the talk, so that our efforts are vindicated. Just to let you know how bad the original sound was, we will put up a sample at our sponsor section as a compersion and a sign of triumph after sweating over this wonderful problem child of ours. Speaking of sponsors, remember that we are giving away our programs for free and the sole reason we can do this is that we are 100% listener-funded. Because of that, we are not beholden to anyone but our listeners, have no censorship, and can explore any avenue we deem fit. To become a sponsor, just buy us a coffee, by donating a dollar or more, preferably on a regular basis, of course unless you contribute a high amount. And all you loyal listeners who have invested in us already, remember that you can sign up at our website. Only a third of our sponsors have done so already. So that means that many of you are not aware of this. Once you do sign up, you will get access to a minimum of five unreleased shows at any given time. In addition to our Q&C sessions, where we address questions and comments from you, our listeners, as well as bonus clips that may be excerpts from a program or or Q&C from our listeners to a guest and so on. And uh, 
also we we will have a raffle where we pick a winner from one of our sponsors that has registered at our website and and the price will be that you can choose a book from one of our guests now speaking of uh, you our listeners it's time to revisit our stats as of july 2016 after one year of broadcasting, we have over half a million downloads. Personally, I find the demographics very interesting. Now, the Americans has long ago hijacked our show and is about 56% of the listeners. The second largest base is United Kingdom with 13%. And tally-ho, Mr. John Bull, we shall soon enough have on some Brits as guests. Third up is Canada, or all the Scandinavia of the Americas, as I usually refer to you chaps. You consist of 8% listeners. Then follows Australia, Netherlands, Germany, and lo and behold... Sweden, who just passed Norway. Gender-wise, we're still a heavily masculine pleasure, with 85% being guys and 50% being chicks. Peter Lavenda, Michael Cremo and Joseph Farrell are the most popular downloads in terms of numbers, but then again, those were among our first shows, so they will always have a head start as far as ratings concern. Still, when we have on big shots in the future, like, say, Graham Hancock, even those numbers may alter. If you want to help us grow in other ways than covering our bills, then like, comment or share as many of our posts on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube as you bother. Because the algorithms that the social medias use increase visibility for the general public, partly based upon such actions. So, for example, even if you listen to a show at our website, liking the same program at YouTube will be of tremendous help. Before riding into the sunset, I want to share a quote with you from Timothy Hogan's book, The Way of the Templar. It should be stated that there are many traditions claiming to be Templar or claiming a Templar lineage or history. We will not dissect the different claims of the different traditions here. Needless to say, some traditions have a more legitimate claim than others. Some template traditions are actually quite ancient, and others are more recent innovations or creations. Above all, however, regardless of what traditional lineages a would-be Templar comes from, it should be stressed that the heart of a true Templar is found in one who desires with all of their being to protect the sacred, regardless of its source. The Templar lives by the injunction, God first served. The Templar understands that it is not his or her individual will which must be manifested in the world, but thine will be done, the will of the great architect of the universe. This is not meant in a petty sectarian sense, dependent on the false promptings of dogma from one church or religious tradition or another, in which others define what their followers need to believe, but rather from the inner promptings of the heart 
from which the motivations of the greater all can manifest according to the greater harmony of all conscious beings. It is the light of the sacred flame within. By its very nature, then, the foundation of Templarism rests on a gnosis or a direct and personal experiential knowledge of God and the Divine, regardless of what cultural names are used for this source. Blessed are they who live constantly in openness to the everlasting presence of God, for they shall be known as the saviors of humanity. To keep this principle in mind is to drink from the Holy Grail. It should also be stated from the beginning that Templar mastery in life does not come from someone conferring a Templar title on you, but rather from the ceaseless choice to think before you act or react in all situations you encounter at any given moment of every day in order to raise the consciousness of all situations by transmutation. In this way, the Templar is the true social alchemist. The Templar is first concerned with finding the holy area within and then bringing this into the world around them. The Templar understands that the true holy land is a sacred place that can only be found within. It is not a territory to be fought over or to lay claim to. A Templar must remember this Do not fight for a holy land on earth, for you will destroy the true holy land within. He who is not at peace with himself is at war with the world, and he who is at peace with himself has found the true inner sanctuary, the new Jerusalem, and the holy of holies of the true Solomon's temple. The Templar is then a free agent of transmutation in the world, acting as a working tool of the sacred flame within to bring about more awakened consciousness in everyone around him or her. The mentality of most of the world when facing problems is fight or flight, but the Templar masters understand and utilize a third option, that of transmutation. A Templar will defend the principles of personal revelation and experience, which necessitates God-given freedoms in the state, even at risk of persecution to him or herself. Consequently, the Templar must live a truly authentic life, being an embodiment of the freedom that he or she protects. These principles being at the foundation of Templarism, it should be quite clear then that it is not necessary for one to live in a monastery or away from the world to be a Templar. In fact, to hide would be counter to the principle of Templarism. As the master Lao Tzu said, whether one gives up all things and hides in a monastery or goes to the other extreme and amasses great riches and a large house to, sh- to shelter himself in, either way the person is not in touch with the way. For a Templar is one who is disciplined in personal spiritual practice on the one hand, while engaging in the world on the other hand. The Templar does not hide away, but rather must be open to all possibility, and consequently available to all as opportunity demands it. This is what makes a Templar a warrior monk. The warrior is one who engages and is willing to sacrifice for the greater awakening of those 
around him or her, while the monk stays vigilant to the spiritual source. So, I leave you for now with those words of wisdom. Do drop by next time we'll continue this exciting series called From Solomon's Temple to Arcadia, of which today's program was an essential backcloth. Your host has been Al, signing off with sincere regards. Be seeing you. Who is number one?